1: What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man.
0: The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done.
1: Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp. This week we are going to play an old episode that we did With Pastor John Fonville on the gospel. It's one of two parts, and I will link part two in the episode notes. Many of you are probably aware of the cold and snow that hit Texas this last week, and that definitely affected Rachel and her family as they were without power for several days. So we were unable to record. The episode that we had planned to record this week, and we will be recording that this next week. Before we get to that episode, I wanted to mention just a few things. If you would like to support us at Theology Gals, it really helps a lot. There are a few different things that you can do. You can support us monthly on Patreon. You can give a one-time donation on PayPal We also have merch, and I'm working on our merch, and hopefully we'll be able to release some more things in the near future. And we also have the journals and sermon notes notebooks, both for children and for adults, in our scripture and catechism memory books. Another way that you can support us is by sharing this episode. You can share right from any of our social media Wanted to mention that one thing that I have been working on these last couple of weeks. For those that aren't in the group, um, you may not be aware, one of the Theology Gals admins puts together a week of calling out theological errors every month. We call it Theological Errors Week. And we're solely going to be releasing some of those on our Instagram and even on the webpage. And then she also has done. Some teaching type series uh, summaries on certain theological doctrines, and so we are slowly releasing those publicly. She doesn't want her name put on there, we're just going to call her a Theolo- Theology Gals contributor, and we're Just greatly appreciative for all the work that she's put into that. And a lot of the girls in the group wanted those to be available outside of the group so that they could share them. So I will link that in the episode notes too. Um, I'm trying to do a little bit more on Instagram. It's not my favorite social media, but I know that we have so many listeners that are active there. So thank you so much for joining us this week. And here's our episode. Hi, and welcome to Theology Gals, and I'm Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host with me, and we have a very special guest on our podcast today, and this is one of our most popular guests that we had on in the past. I still hear from people that discover our last episode with him, and that is Pastor John Fonville, and he's pastor in Jacksonville of Paramount Church, and it's an Anglican church now. And then also, I'm going to link in the episode notes. He's got uh, Him We Proclaim Radio, and there's lots of sermons out there too, which I'll link where you can listen to those. I highly recommend them. Uh, John's sermons are always very encouraging, very gospel-centered. And, you know, I think, John, just for starters, if you could share a little bit about your background and maybe even tie in why this subject is so
0: important to you. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, and it's, uh, it's a blessing to be back. And um, uh, I think last time uh, we were talking, you said it was two and a half years. It feels like it was maybe two and a half weeks ago. <laughs> time goes by so fast. Um, yeah, but it's great, and Rachel, it's great to be on with you this time as well. We uh, have uh, greatly benefited from your work, and are thankful for what you do as well, so it's great to have you have you with you as well. You, John. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Um, well, my background, gosh, I, mean, I guess we could probably do a whole podcast on that, but I don't know if my life is that exciting. <laughs> um, man, where do you start? Well, I, uh, I grew up uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, so that makes me a Tar Heel fan, but uh, Tar Heel basketball this year is a little bit... Uh, difficult for us so (laughs) we're not going to talk about NCAA basketball um and the Tar Heels but anyway I grew up in North Carolina in Charlotte and I grew up in a non-denominational church of course we know there's no such thing as non-denominational it was Baptist (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but uh, my uh, my home church was Calvary Church and uh, Dr. Ross Rhodes was the pastor in uh let's see um Uh, What was Billy Graham's, um, brother-in-law, uh, just slipped my mind. His brother, Billy Graham's brother-in-law helped found the church. Um, so it was a very evangelical church in terms of preaching the gospel to unbelievers. And, um, it's become, uh, it it was a great church for that perspective. I was, was a little boy, but I just remember as a little boy growing up in that, uh, uh, evangelical background of preaching the gospel to get people saved and um, uh, after that my uh, my parents moved from uh, Charlotte to a little uh, town outside of Charlotte called Lincoln in North Carolina and I grew up in a Southern Baptist church at that point and um, after my Southern Baptist upbringing I uh, went to uh, Gardner Webb University and back then uh the, the Southern Baptist convention was experiencing an influx of a bunch of liberals. And, uh, and there was German higher criticism and, uh, all those theories about, uh, uh, came with that. And, um, I think, uh, Karl Barth and, uh, Altmann were the two of my professor's favorite, uh, people. And so I was, uh, indoctrinated in German higher critical theory. Had I didn't learn much gospel at uh, my Southern Baptist uh, training. So um, I was talking with my parents and I said, look, I I feel like the Lord may be calling me into the the ministry and I don't feel equipped. Because I haven't learned anything about the Bible. I've just learned that the Bible isn't true, basically. Um, And uh, my dad said, well, have you ever thought about uh, John MacArthur? He started a new seminary. And I had grown up my whole life as a young person listening to Grace to You and, and listening to uh, all of these um, famous celebrity pastors that we talk about and we'll hear about uh, on the radio station in Black Mountain, North Carolina. And uh, I think that was owned by the Billy Graham Association. And so I thought, well, you know, John MacArthur believes the Bible and he really takes a stand and perhaps that's what I should do. So uh, I uh, left the Southern Baptist Church. When I graduated, in that was 1992. Wow, <laughs> long time ago. Uh, graduated in 1992 and uh, left North Carolina and went out to California. And uh, I actually uh, got a job working as an, uh, an, uh, a ninth grade youth pastor at Chuckson Swindoll's Church, at the First Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton, California. Um, And I was commuting. I had just gotten married to Catherine, and uh, we uh, started our life in Fullerton, and we were commuting uh, three days a week up to uh, Sun Valley and to the Master's Seminary and to Catherine to the Master's College. And that was about, that was a... That was a 130-mile round-trip commute, three days a week, starting at, we would leave the house at 4.45 in the morning and get home at about 7.30 at night. It was really hard. But we we started our life out there, our ministry out there, and uh, started school out there at the Master's Seminary. and, And so I began to study. And I would say probably about my second, end of my second year of uh studies at the master seminary, I just began to have questions. And uh we're not I guess we're not gonna get into it because we did it last podcast, but we had, we we started thinking about question about the lordship salvation and uh the hermeneutics that I was being taught and the systematic theology classes on dispensationalism that I was being taught and um just had a lot of questions and I I I didn't know what the answers were. Uh, but by about my third year into it, I just came to the conviction that I don't think I believe dispensationalism. I don't think I believe Lordship Salvation. But I didn't really know what the answers were because I was always taught at, well, the, the Reformed people, they allegorize and they spiritualize the text and they make stuff up and, uh, covenant theology leads to liberalism, and I'm thinking, well, I've already been in liberalism <laughs> from Gardner-Webb, and I I don't think Michael Horton at Westminster Seminary California is teaching the same thing that I learned at Gardner-Webb. Um, so I just had a lot of questions. Uh, by the time I graduated in my fourth year uh, from the master's, I basically... Um, walked away from my education and started over at ground zero and began to re-study and rethink every facet, uh, uh of theology, hermeneutics, um, exposition, everything that I had been taught, uh, because I didn't know what the answers were. And, and I've, I've never forgotten. I may have talked about this, um, in our previous uh, time together but i um i was um i was reading a book by uh i guess at the time it was a non-conformist uh, puritan and uh, his name is matthew made and he wrote a book called the almost christian discovery uh, and i believe john MacArthur wrote the foreword to it and uh, i was on a youth trip and uh, with Catherine, and and i had finished reading the book on the youth trip and I remember putting the book down and looking at Catherine and just saying, you know what, Catherine, I've decided, I've discovered, and I've come to the conclusion I'm the almost Christian discoverer. Uh, there's no hope for me. Uh, I'm going to go to hell. And I had zero assurance. I, I had no idea that the gospel was for Christians because all I knew was Lordship salvation. And I, I've I read the book of First John, and we were taught that the book of First John gives you the tests, and you have to test yourself and uh, examine your life. And if you don't pass the test, then you're not a you're not a Christian. You're not submitted to Christ's lordship. So uh, I read that book on the Almost Christian discovered, and and I just uh, made the I just realized, oh, this is me. Um, and so I began a search. I began a, a really deep. Rooted search uh, was basically like Martin Luther prior to his conversion where you're climbing the chapel steps, doing acts of penance, trying to get back into God's good graces, thinking that that's repentance. And if I just do it sincerely enough, uh, somehow God's going to come through and he's going to say, oh, wow, John, you're really repentant. Well, I will forgive you now. Uh, but it was just really, I was, uh, I was a confessing evangelical, but a functional Roman Catholic. I was a medieval believer. Hmm. And I didn't know it because um, uh, I had never been taught one simple thing that really changed my life. And it was from Rod Rosenblatt, which I think, isn't Rod your uh, father-in-law, call me?
1: He, it's He's um, my brother-in-law's dad.
0: Bro- oh, okay, brother-in-law's dad. Okay. Yeah. I knew there was a connection somewhere. Um, Rod, in in the book that Michael Horton edited, Christ the Lord, he wrote a great chapter. And he just simply said this, Christ died for the sins of Christians too. And when I read that, it, it was just amazing because nobody had ever told me, you know, John Christ died for the sins of Christians too. I had no idea that the gospel was for Christians because I had this truncated view of the gospel, that the gospel is what you believe as an unbeliever. And that once you get in, what you have to do now is work really hard in your quote, sanctification to keep in God's good graces so that you can grow in holiness and be a wholly obedient, submitted believer to the Lordship of Christ. And uh, I'll tell you, when I discovered that, uh, it was, it was very eye-opening. There was one other, just really quick, there was there was one other thing that happened to me that has been defining to my life, and, and hopefully this will help people who are listening today, but um, once I graduated from the master's, and I had been going through a very deep struggle about my faith, and not knowing the gospel, and uh, questioning everything that I've been taught, and looking at the reality of church, and the way it was structured, and how church life was conducted. I, I just became a very, uh, very embittered young man, which can happen a lot of times in churches and to young people. They get disillusioned. I became very disillusioned, uh, very embittered. And um, uh, after we had left uh, California, we went back to North Carolina, and I had started a little radio programs. Our, our families in Christian radio, and um, it was called Truth Talk Live, and it was it was basically a, a daily call-in talk show uh, where people would ask questions about the faith, questions about Christian life, or questions about uh, moral topics of the day, like abortion or something like that, and just entertain, entertain uh, callers, and we would talk about the issues of the day, and that kind of took off, and it started to get pretty good, and it was getting kind of exciting, and I'm thinking, oh, man, you know, this is It's going to work. Uh, But then within about a matter of a two-week span, I went from talking to uh, I became a functional mute. And um, I went to the Wake Forest Medical Center, and the doctors, I had three otolaryngologists diagnose me with uh, what they at the time said was an incurable neurological disorder, and it's very debilitating. Uh, And they told me, they said, you know the good news is we know what you have. The bad news is you'll never speak ever again. And that that was the that was just probably one of the deepest moments of my life, deepest pit. And um, I can't. I, I went home from the doctor from the hospital, and I went back to our house, and uh, I just put my head on my desk, and I was uncontrollably weeping, just kind of heaving. I felt like you were gonna maybe. Throw up because you're you're weeping so hard, and after about a half hour of that, um, I just started praying in my head, and I was just praying like this: "I was like, Lord, I don't, I don't have a clue who you are. I don't have a clue about life. I don't know what any of this stuff means. Uh, but I'm just miserable, and I can't live like this. Just please, get, a, you know, if you're there, just help me. Give me something." And I turned right in my chair and looked at my bookshelf and I started scanning the bookshelf and I saw a book on my bookshelf that I never read. It was entitled The Cross of Christ by John Stott. And I thought, well, I'll just I'll thumb through this and see if, you know, I can find something. And I was flipping through the pages and I came to his chapter on, on the cross and suffering. And John Stott wrote this little sentence that that was the beginning point of what I tell people was my gospel awakening. It was in this was in October of 2000. So it was about 19, it was 19 years ago. And John Stott basically says this as a, as a paraphrase. He basically says that we have to learn to climb the hill called Calvary. And from that vantage point, survey all of life's tragedies. The Bible doesn't tell us why we suffer but the cross applies the essential perspective from which to view it. And when I read that for the first time in my life, uh, you know, it's not mystical. It's not like John, you know, speaking from heaven, <laughs> anything like that. But you just knew the Holy Spirit was calling and saying, you don't know the gospel. You don't. You don't know Christ. You don't know the Father. You don't know who we are but we're going to teach you this gospel. I'm going to teach this to you. And I've never forgotten that moment. And I was, I was, you know, I was, I was, I was just, I was all alone uh, by myself in the basement reading this Anglican theologian, pastor, John Stunt. And God used him in his book to awaken me to the centrality of the gospel for the first time in my life. And it's, it's like Francis Schaeffer says, when a believer comes to understand the centrality of the gospel, it's like he's been born again and again. And that's exactly what happened to me that day. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more details and there's much more I could say. I've probably said enough about that. But, but ever since October 2000 to the moment we're talking now, I, I've just been on this gospel awakening journey of faith. For the past nineteen, almost twenty years, and um, I, I've never looked back. I've—it's been uh, life has been difficult, many challenges. Uh, you know, it hasn't been like a day at the spa, <laughs> although it would be nice. Um, but coming to understand the centrality of the gospel, the uniqueness of the gospel and, and how that the gospel is the only thing that we as a church have that is utterly unique to offer to the world and to offer to sinners, both outside the church and inside the church. And that's that's just been life-changing. And every day is a, it's a new journey of discovering more and learning more of what Paul says is the unsearchable riches of Christ. Uh, so I, I hope that's helpful, uh, and that's kind of how I've gotten to where I
2: am. Thank you, John. It was it was very helpful to hear your journey, and I know that uh, very likely many of our listeners can appreciate and, and relate to you know aspects of of finding the gospel that you have in your life. When we talk about the gospel, you know the word gets used a lot in, right. in Christian discussions but often it's used without a good definition. So right. how would you define the gospel for us?
0: Yeah, that's that's the big uh, million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> um, boy, you know, there's and there's so many different ways because the gospel is so big. But I would, you know, at the core, you know, what is the gospel? I would just say that, you know, uh, in a nutshell, really, uh, and breathe the gospel is a joyful announcement it's a message and it's a message about a person jesus matthew and matthew 1 verse 1 he's the son of david he's the son of abraham and we could spend a whole podcast unpacking just matthew 1 1 and the good news that he's announcing jesus is the he's the offspring of david he is the fulfillment of the davidic covenant he is the He's the offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3, 16, Paul says the same thing. He's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to bless the nations of the earth. He's Messiah. He's Lord Romans 1, 1 through 4. But as you begin to define the gospel, it's huge. But I would say just in brief, you know, the gospel is a joyful announcement about Jesus. It's a message about Jesus and his life and his death and his burial his resurrection, and Paul gives us these—excuse uh, the pun—paramount <laughs> uh, aspects of the of the core of the gospel in First Corinthians 15, verses three to four. Uh, you know, he says in First Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, the resurrection of Christ, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. He makes the life and the death, the burial and resurrection of Christ paramount essential. it's it's this joyful news this joyful message it's 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 the announcement from the battlefield it's good news we have it's not something that we do it's something that is proclaimed to us from outside of us it's god's message from heaven uh god you know when he says peter jesus who do you to peter who do you say that i am Peter says, well, you know, you're the son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven, the, the gospel is a divinely revealed joyful message that comes from outside of us from heaven. And it's revealed to us through the Holy Spirit, the work of the spirit. But but the gospel itself uh, it's it's this joyful announcement about jesus and and what he has come to do in his life death burial and resurrection to save us i just say one other quick thing about you know the gospel um often when we talk about the gospel sometimes you know we leave out the burial of jesus but paul clearly says the apostle you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, that the burial of Christ is of first importance to our confession, to our faith, and to our lives. And one of the, you know, I've become an Anglican, and uh, one of the things in the Anglican Church in North America, the ACNA, and one of the things that I've loved about uh, becoming an Anglican is we, uh, we observe Holy Saturday. And prior to becoming an Anglican, which has taken a long time, and we don't have time to talk about that, but I had never given much thought about Holy Saturday. In fact, I really haven't given any thought to Holy Saturday. And, and it's its importance, it's paramount importance to our life of Jesus' burial for us in the grave. Um, but yet it begins all the way back in the fall, Galatians, or Genesis 3, that to dust, you know, because you have broken the covenant of works, you're going to, you're dusted and you're going to go back to the dust. Our bodies will be laid in the dust of death. Uh, but because Christ has sanctified this grave and was laid in the dust of death. uh you know, our burial is not the final end. Our bodies will be resurrected and reunited with our souls and we'll be in a glorified, resurrected body. But Jesus sanctified the grave, and there's much more we could look at about the burial of Christ. But I would just say, you know, I wasn't going to mention that, but I just think it's important that we think about, that we give more thought uh, to the burial of Christ and its manifold implications for us is good news. And living by that with the hope that we have that our graves have been sanctified yeah, by, by Christ himself. So I think it's important to get that. But anyway, what is the gospel? It's a, just a joyful message. It's good news, and it's the best news that we could ever give as I said, not only to those outside the church, but those who are inside the church.
1: Yeah, and you know, John, that so often we hear messages where people include include law with gospel. Rachel and I are are currently working through a series where we talked about law, we're talking about law and gospel, and when they include law with gospel, it's not really good news anymore.
0: Um, it, it, yeah, exactly. It um, you know, uh, Michael Horton was one of my professors, and he's a dear friend, and uh, I'm just so thankful. I hope everybody listening listens to Michael Horton. I hope they read everything he's written. <laughs> Uh, just to put a plug in for him, just grateful for his life and his ministry to me. And, and you know, he taught us in class. He says, look, when we, when we confuse law and gospel, and we, we, we uh, conflate them together, we, we come out with gospel and where we have neither the law nor the gospel, but we have this, we have this a uh, lifeless moralism that results where we don't have a law that drives us and shows us our constant need of Christ. And we don't have the gospel that comforts us and assures us, you know, that even though we are constant lawbreakers, even as believers, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we don't have that assurance Um, As Walter Marshall in his great books, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, wonderful book, probably read it 50 times. Uh, Without this gospel assurance and the sure foundation, we can't pursue holiness. We can't give true evangelical obedience because moral, you know, moralism is lifeless. There's no life in and moralism, or some people call it, you know, nomism, legalism. Uh, so yeah, we, we we have to be very careful not to, uh, to confuse these things. Because if we if we confuse the law and gospel, we lose the Christian faith itself. Right? We're, what it what we lose is what is distinctive about the Christian faith to begin with every religion has, uh, morality. Uh, every religion has a code of ethics. Um, I was uh, reading the other day about Buddhism. They have, they have uh, 10 moral codes. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Where would they get 10 moral codes from? Um, and a lot of those moral codes, uh, they just repeat the Ten Commandments. It's because we were wired in creation with the law written on our hearts. Paul says in Romans 2, we have a conscience. It's God's moral law. We can't escape it. Everybody knows, regardless of any culture you're in, you don't take, you don't kill, uh, you don't lie, you don't cheat people. But what, what nobody knows including us apart from the work of the spirit It's the gospel. And so if we confuse the law and the gospel, we lose what is distinctive about the Christian faith. And we lose the only unique thing that the church has to offer the world, which is a gospel, uh, giving morality to the world. Yes. It's important, obviously, because we have to live in a, we don't want to live in a lawless society, you know, uh, but morality is not going to get a person into the kingdom. In fact, morality is our problem. <laughs> that's what keeps us from the kingdom. At least that's what Jesus said. We need a greater morality than what we can muster up with putting ourselves up by our bootstraps. So these are important things not to confuse.
1: Yeah. So what, what does it mean to assume or deny the gospel?
0: That's that. You know what? That that's huge. And I see this all the time, uh, working as a pastor in our own church, assuming the gospel. There's many things we could say about that. There's many, many routes we could take. I would say, first of all, you know, assuming the gospel. We're what is that? It's taking it for granted. It's just simply taking the gospel for granted. But um, maybe we can flesh that out a little bit. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of David Gibson. Have you heard of David Gibson?
1: I don't he's, think um, I have.
0: Yeah, he's written a really, really helpful article. You might want to link this and your, for your podcast listeners. It's called "Assumed Evangelicalism: Some Reflections in Route to Denying the Gospel." It's just a fantastic article. But uh, in the article, he talks about this assumed evangelicalism, this assumed gospel, and he says, "Look, it's certainly not." true that evangelicals deny the gospel but when we assume the gospel he he talks in his article and i think he's exactly right because graham goldsworthy talks a lot about this in his works too one of my favorite anglican uh old testament scholar and biblical theologians i'll come back to him in a minute but he talks about you know what is assumed what is assuming the gospel it's like it's in terms of priorities and focus and attention direction. Um, when we assume the gospel, uh, it, it's it's where churches and pastors and authors they just they take the gospel for granted, and other things gradually increase to other concerns take over the centrality of the gospel. Uh, let me give you an example. And you guys have probably done this because, uh, Rachel, you're an author. <laughs> You've read the book, and uh, you're doing a great job. You're, by the way, if you're listening, if you haven't gotten beyond authority and submission by Rachel Miller, get it. <laughs> it's a great book. Um, but you ju- if you just go to any Christian bookstore and you browse through the Christian living section, it's the biggest section in the bookstore. And when you look at these books on Christian living, they're filled with, you know, how-tos and keys and principles and secrets for living a successful Christian life or an overcoming life or uh, a happier marriage or better kids or whatever it is. Um, And when when you begin to dive into these books, the gospel is at best assumed. Uh, books and sermons are not self-consciously gospel-centered. The gospel isn't definitive and central. Other concerns uh, begin to take over, and the gospel is taken for granted. And uh, I mentioned Graham Goldsworthy in his his book, Preaching the Whole Bible as Christian Scriptures. It's wonderful book. Um He talks about when, when pastors and churches and authors, when they, when they focus solely on imperatives in Scripture. When you have this sole focus, uh, he calls it uh, teaching or preaching naked law, naked law, Um, and and he gives this insight. I think it's very helpful. He talks about when we preach like this, he says it is to preach law, but to leave the impression that the essence of Christianity is what we do rather than what God has done. And then he says legalism easily creeps in even when we think we've avoided it. The preacher may well understand the relationship of law and grace, but the structure of the sermon program may undermine it in the thinking of many in the congregation he's exactly right and i tell you as a pastor i've been working in the church since i was 18 years old my birthday is coming up so shortly i'm not going to tell you which one <laughs> um but you know Goldsworthy makes the point that the life and ministry of a local church needs to be self-consciously gospel-centered if it's to maintain any kind of effectiveness for the kingdom of God. And and he's exactly right. I know from years of preaching and teaching and laboring in the church that um, when I'm sitting now with some of my parishioners and they're struggling, it always comes back to figuring out what aspect of the gospel are they just missing? And do I need to just press this into them a little bit further? And, you know, sometimes there are other circumstances where they need a therapist or they need a psychiatrist or psychologist or do some extra things that, that I'm not capable of doing as a pastor. But I can tell you, even in those very difficult um those difficult situations that I've run into uh, with the people in our church, they still need the gospel as well. And um, uh, Lord willing, I'm working on a book uh, based on 1 Corinthians 6, um, and it's where Paul is trying to clean up the mess in the Corinthian church of the believers who are, uh, just giving themselves to sexual immorality in the church. And the, one of the things that is amazing that you look at how he, he seeks to get them living a holy life in 1 Corinthians is he does have warning passages. And he does give warning and talk about judgment. But in that passage where he's really lasering in to get their lives cleaned up, He gives two imperatives in that whole entire section, but he bookends those imperatives with mountains of gospel and its implications for living out a holy life as a believer. And so he's not assuming the gospel. In fact, he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, do you not know? And he says it to them, oh, yes, I'm over and over and over. Do you not know? Do you not know? In other words, he's rebuking them. No, you don't know. You don't know the gospel, and you don't understand how it fleshes out for its implications to actually stop going to the temples to uh, to your worship service that you grew up with in Corinth. Um, temple prostitution. He says, let me show you how to change this. And then he, he gives them. I just quickly. He gives them doctrine of justification, the doctrine of election. He gives them the doctrine of union with Christ. He gives them the doctrine of resurrection. He applies and I've never seen this in any Christian bookstore ever, how you apply the doctrine of resurrection to my daily life of sexual purity. But he does that. Then he goes to the implications and, and the effects of the gospel. and He goes to the gift of the spirit and he says, look, you've gone to temples, but now you're the temple. And so he picks up this whole temple, biblical, theological, uh, redemptive narrative, and, and 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 he applies it to holiness of life. But the amazing thing is, is when he's trying to clean up their life as believers, there are two imperatives versus a mountain of gospel. And I've applied this many, many times to cases in our church of young men who have very profound sexual addiction problems that I've been working with now for probably seven, eight years. And when I sit down with them, I take them through the study of 1 Corinthians, and I get them to count up the amount of imperatives versus the amount of imperatives they've been given before they came to me. And inevitably, their jaw hits the ground, and they just say, wow, there's only two imperatives here for me to do, But there's so much gospel here that I've never seen. And I think that's the problem with assumed gospel, assumed evangelicalism. We take the gospel for granted, but it's not self-consciously in terms of its priorities, its focus, its direction in in the lives of our church and in our personal Christian lives. You know what? To what extent does the gospel dictate our priorities in life, and the strategies of our church, um, and and how we order the church? And that was part of what I wrote for my uh, thesis for uh, Ligonier Academy when I, when R.C. Sproul was still alive. I got to take his class on justification. It was wonderful, and and so I wrote a, a whole. Uh, thesis from the book of Titus on showing how Paul takes the centrality of the gospel in every chapter to bring order and life and godliness to the church. And <clears throat> so, um, you know, uh, when we talk about the soon gospel, I mean, I, there's many more things I could, could talk about in more directions. We could go, maybe that's helpful. If you want to keep pressing further, I'm, I'm happy to do that.
2: That's very helpful on on what it means to assume and, and to deny the gospel. And you mentioned your um, your doctoral thesis, your uh, dissertation. Um, and I had a chance to, to read through it, and it's really very helpful. And, and at least one place you mentioned in connection with assuming and denying the gospels, you talk about some of the common false gospels that we find in our churches. Mm-hmm. And I um, wondered if you might... You know, kind of cover a few of those that that people would be familiar with uh, that they would run across in their churches.
0: Yeah, well, you know, well, thank you. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad one person benefited from my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of false gospels that are floating out there. You know, some of the easy, low-hanging fruit ones that. Get picked on a lot. You know, prosperity gospel. We don't need to talk about that. We uh, obviously that's a that is a perversion of the true gospel. Um, the radical gospel, what I call it. Uh, if people want to know about that. They can go back to the, the the other interview we did about David Platt and Lordship Salvation. But the radical gospel, which is really uh, just in a nutshell, the radical gospel is a radical confusion of law and gospel. It's not the gospel Um, that we have. uh, We we just talked about the assumed gospel uh, and there's a truncated gospel. I I mentioned that about, you know, the gospel is what we preach to unbelievers to quote, get them saved. Uh, Then once they get into the church, we quit preaching them the gospel and we talk about the duties of discipleship and we challenge them to obey and, uh, the how to's of discipleship, the gospel, uh, you don't need the gospel anymore except to share it with other unbelievers. You, you need to be challenged to, uh, you know, the how to's of discipleship. Um, J.I. Packer and Gary Parrott have written a wonderful book called Grounded in the gospel. And they address this, uh, this common, uh, truncated view, this truncated gospel. And this is what they say about it. They say, we move on in the gospel, but never from the gospel. And then they write, as we move on in the gospel, we have much to teach about the implications of that gospel for doctrine, devotion, and duty. They're exactly right. And so they, they finished by saying that, you know, our commitment to evangelizing should take another form as well. Not only are we to take the gospel to those outside the church, we are also to declare it inside the church community also, and we're to do so clearly, compellingly, and consistently um, and and I've, I meet, we, we have uh, what's called lay catechists in the, the Anglican church. They're basically non-ordained Bible teachers like Sunday school teachers and discipleship group teachers, things like that. And I meet with them every Monday night. I've been doing so for the past seven, eight years, and I've basically given them a, a, a seminary education. Um, and what I have been, what I've just hammered into them I said, guys, never, ever take, never assume and never take for granted the fact that people who are sitting in our pews week after week understand the gospel and believe it. Um, the, the most unevangelized group of people are people in the church every Sunday. Um, and we are called to evangelize the church. We are, uh, the apostle Paul in Romans chapter one, verse 15. It's one of my favorite verses that he says, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And he is saying that, you know, as he gives us, gosh, you know, the, the greatest exposition ever penned of the gospel, the book of Romans and its implications from chapters 12 to 16. Um, He tells these believers in the church, you know, I am eager, I am zealous, I am motivated to proclaim this good news to you believers, and that doesn't happen with an assumed gospel, a truncated gospel, a therapeutic gospel, you know, the gospel is just to kind of make me feel better, Uh, this therapeutic gospel. um, Michael Horton's talked a lot about it from the sociologist Christian Smith, and this, you know, the moralistic, therapeutic gospel, uh, you know, uh, how to feel good, how to overcome depression, how to have a full and successful life, learn how to handle your money, uh, secrets of successful family living, and so forth. Uh, basically, the gospel is kind of given to you to kind of a, like a spa like life. <laughs> it's like going to the spa and everything is going to be better because this is therapy for you. Um, all these kinds of uh, false gospels float around the church and they really don't get to the heart of the issue that this good news, this gospel is really, you know, these false gospels fail to see that our greatest problem is our guilt. It's our condemnation. It's our alienation from God. And we, um, we need to be saved from God. We need to be saved from his judgment to come. Um, and we need our sin forgiven. Uh, but then also, you know, it fails to see, like the assumed gospel, this truncated gospel, it fails to see that our day-to-day acceptance with God is based on the gospel of Christ for us, uh, not what we do for God. And... Uh, as a result, believers and churches just live in this spiritual poverty, uh, and it's, uh, it's a problem. And we, uh, you know, at our church, we're not perfect. We don't have a perfect church. If we did, uh, then probably it would be the new creation because <laughs> perfection hasn't come yet. But, but what we do strive to do at our church is we are always in everything we do, in every class we teach, whether it be little kids, youth, uh, catechism class, whether it be public worship, is always every single week Christ for you. It is Christ. It's the gospel that we make clear. We do preach the law. In fact, I preached a sermon two weeks ago, and people we're saying, wow, John, I felt like I couldn't breathe. <laughs> I'm like, well, there you go. That's the law. <laughs> um, but, but but, I ended that sermon with, with the comfort so that they could breathe. Because if a believer can't breathe spiritually, he or she can't obey. And they're not going to obey. They're going to be like Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, uh, they broke God's law, and God says, Adam, where are you? And, you know, that's not a question of location. That's that's a covenantal question. Adam, where are you in relationship to me now that you've broken my covenant? How do you stand before me? And, of course, we know Adam was fully exposed. He was naked with, with his wife Eve. And they're fully exposed to a God of law who calls out to him with a law question. Where are you? How do you stand in relationship to me? And Adam was guilty. He said, I, I heard your voice, the Hebrew word, kol. I heard, your, I heard your word, your voice. I heard the law. And I was naked, so I hid myself because I was afraid. And that's sadly, tragically, the, the response of every human conscience, apart from a mediator, apart from the gospel, apart from grace, that we stand fully exposed to a holy God who has created us and we're accountable to him. And uh, apart from Genesis 3, 15, where we have the first gospel, uh, if God had not spoken that Adam had every right to be afraid. He, he had no idea that God would, would speak to him a word of promise and bring redemption. He was just expecting I've broken the covenant the penalty is death. God has come calling and now I'm going to have to be accountable and he's going to execute. Me. That was his expectation. And that's everybody's expectation. Um, and that's why we can never assume or take for granted the gospel. We have to make sure that people hear it consistently and clearly and compellingly every single week in our churches and then to teach them how to preach the gospel to themselves throughout the week. And the only thing is about that, yes, we are to preach the gospel to ourselves and learn how to do it, but we don't do it well. And that's why in Ephesians four, the, you know, Paul says the risen Christ has poured out his gifts, his gifted ones on the church who, who are empowered by the Holy spirit to do it for us. And that's why the visible church is as a gift it, it, you know, God is the gift giver. That the triune God, the Father gives the Son, and the Father gives the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives us Christ, and Christ gives us back to the Father. They're constantly giving. That God is the, the triune God is a gift giver, and He gives His gifts through His Church to His people, and that's why it's so important to sit week after week under the means of grace of Word and Sacrament, where. We we can have our faith built up and strengthened because faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Uh, these 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 common false gospels they don't achieve that, and uh, we have to, we just have to make sure that we're we're getting it we're getting the emphasis right we get the message right, and we get the emphasis right once we get the message right, and that's really what we're called to do.
1: You know, I learned so much about when I was in the beginning of studying Reformed theology, and my I met my husband, he introduced me to the White Horse Inn, and I was able to finally grasp the gospel, because I think I grew up similarly to what you did, um, but I... Speaking of false gospels, and this was probably in the mid-90s, their producer, Whitehorse and producer, I think it was Shane Rosenthal, went to the Christian Booksellers Convention. I think he asked like 100 people, what is the gospel? Hmm. And there was like, I think like two out of the hundred that answered. This is at the Christian Booksellers Convention, people that are confessing Christians that are working in the industry. And that's just very eye-opening. You know, we've even talked in the podcast before, I think an episode I did with Angela that you may have a coworker that says, Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church every week, but maybe they have never heard the gospel. Because we've no. had people even write into our show and say, Hey, I grew up in the church and I just heard the gospel for the first time on your show. But I think one of the one of the things for me personally in understanding law and gospel is just how Important it's been in my everyday life, whether it's um, reminding myself of the gospel in those moments where I can't breathe because I'm crushed by uh. the law, or um, thanks to Rod's influence in my life, understanding how to apply law and gospel in my parenting, and um, realizing that the same this the same benefits of law and gospel to my life can be used in how I parent my kids, um, understanding the purpose of the law in my kid's life, knowing when the law has done its job, and applying the gospel. But can you talk about the relationship uh, between law and gospel in, in Scripture, in the life of the believer, and, and also if you could kind of add to that why the gospel is for us as believers too, not just for the non-Christian. Because when you were talking earlier, I was thinking, mm-hmm. I think so often people think that, you know, you hear the gospel in the beginning of your Christian life and it wipes your slate clean and now you got to maintain something. And they don't understand that the gospel is for us. Every single day I remind myself of the gospel. I need to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, wow. That's that's a, you know, what is the relationship on gospel? I mean, that in scripture and life, and and why is it important for believers? You know, these are these are huge things, um, very important things. Just really quick, you know, you mentioned about teaching your kids these things. That's why, I like, teaching the catechism, the Reformed catechisms to our kids are so important. Teaching these these believers who've gone before us, they, they dealt with the same issues and they, they were very smart. In fact, most of them or all of them were probably smarter than all of us put together <laughs> who wrote these things. Um, and they gave us categories. They, they gave us the vocabulary. And um, I, you know you often hear church growth people say, Oh, don't use Christianese in the church because when they do, nobody's going to understand what you're talking about. That's a very Pelagian view. Unbelievers, when they come to our church, don't understand anything we're talking about, period. It doesn't matter what the language is. Um, but, but besides that, um, we need to use Christian language, Christian vocabulary, Christian categories, and we need to use it for our children. And that's where the catechisms come in so handy. For example, the Heidelberg Catechism. I've been teaching that catechism to our children ever since every one of them were born. Um, And I can tell you, uh, we have a daughter who just turned 22. She's a sprinter on the swim team for North Carolina State, and we're really proud of her. Uh, we have another daughter who is just turned, she's getting ready to turn 20 in February. Uh, and she's a track and field athlete and a volleyball player at Biola in uh, La Mirada, California, near Anaheim. And they're both in college. And I can tell you uh, when my girls call me and say, daddy, we can't find a church that is preaching the centrality of the gospel and administering the sacraments to us properly. Can you please help me? That just made Daddy's day <laughs> um, because you know when 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 you're teaching these catechisms to your kids, it's not a perfect. Uh, it's not like you have this perfect setup every night. And everything is always, in, you know, and they're all sitting around the table at dinner, and everybody's quiet, everybody's obedient, and, you, you know, it's like, you tell them to be quiet 50 times. If you get up from the table one more time, <laughs> and you're trying, you're wondering, is this stuff really working? And my point is, is that over a lifetime of just constantly, not perfectly, but consistently as best you can with the busyness of life and sports and school and all that we go through teaching our kids um, a, a paradigm giving them categories giving them christian vocabulary i've seen it with my two daughters when they left the home and you're just wondering you're praying for them did they get it are they going to have the discernment? Are they going to, just going to get swept up in a typical evangelical, teach-nothing, moralistic lecture church? You know, uh, And then they, they come to me, and they have the categories of law and gospel. They, they have guilt, grace, gratitude from the Heidelberg Catechism, and they live their life by that. And they're looking for that in the church. There's nothing that brings more joy to my life than that. so first thing I would just say is for parents, you know, if you want your kids to learn learn how to live a gospel-centered life, don't reinvent the wheel. It's been done for us, and and it's been handed down to us. Teach them the Reformed confessions. Teach them the Reformed catechisms. These things are life-changing. And they're filled with good news. Um, so that's you know that, that's a long answer for parenting and the gospel. But I, I, that's the method my wife Catherine and I use. We don't we don't have practical tips. We don't have here are fifteen steps you can follow and your child will turn out perfect. <laughs> you know it doesn't work like that. Law doesn't produce life. The gospel does. The Second Corinthians three six or three eight. Paul says that the gospel is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians 4, verse 6. Uh, he compares preaching of the gospel to ex nihilo creation. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he says, so God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You know, do you want your kids' eyes opened up? Give them the gospel. Um, ex nihilo creation takes place through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he creates what is not there through this foolish message that we preach to our children uh, the problem is parents don't know the gospel so they need to come to church to learn it unfortunately they're they're doing what you mentioned calling they're, they're going to Christian bookstores and Christian booksellers conventions and 98 out of a hundred uh, Christian uh, publishers aren't publishing the gospel and they can't even tell you what it is so that's the you know that's a huge problem the other, I'd say about the relationship of the law and gospel in scripture, which is very important because this gets talked about a lot. I see it on social media quite a bit. Uh, at least from where we are coming from, the Reformed confessions of the Christian faith, uh, when we're talking about law and gospel in scripture, we're talking about different covenants and how these different covenants relate. To us, or or better yet, how God relates to us in those covenants. I just give you two examples because the apostle Paul makes this so clear in the book of Galatians. Because for Paul, the Judaizing heresy in the book of Galatians was simply the confusion of these Judaizers of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant. They're trying to make Abraham Moses. Uh, and as Scott Clark, one of my other good friends, and uh, professor mentors, very grateful for him, has taught me, you know, Abraham is not Moses. Paul makes this clear in the book of Galatians, but uh, when we're talking about law and gospel, the, the Mosaic covenant, isn't, it, it, it is an administration of the covenant of grace, largely considered, but strictly taken, the, the Mosaic covenant is a principle of law. Um, it it is a law covenant, and that's how Paul refers to it in Galatians. He calls it namas. He calls it law. But when he refers to the Abrahamic covenant, he calls it promise. He speaks of it as promise. And if you go back and if you look, for example, in uh, Genesis 12, verse 3, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, when the apostle Paul quotes Genesis 12, verse 3, he It calls the Abrahamic covenant, the gospel beforehand, the gospel in promise. Um, And you look at, you know, the the Abrahamic covenant, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the promise of it. I I will, I will, I will. It says over and over and over to Abraham. You come to Genesis 15, the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant. What does Abraham contribute to the ratifying of that covenant? Nothing. He goes to sleep. And while he's sleeping, God Himself is walking through these severed halves of the animals and He is calling down upon Himself the self maledictory oath, saying, swearing to Abraham, if I don't fulfill my promise that I gave you in Genesis 12, right? Then let what happened to these animals happen to me. Let me be cut off. And then Genesis seventeen, the sealing, uh, the the sealing of the Abrahamic covenant through circ- the sacrament of circumcision. He he gives that visible reminder in the flesh of every male Hebrew male child in an adult male. Uh, here is here are the severed halves right here in your flesh. Here is my promise. And he promises to be a God, to us and to our children. in Genesis 17 verse 7. This is Yahweh's promise, covenant of promise, of grace to us. It's unconditional. He will bring this about in his time. And of course, when you read Galatians, Galatians 3:16, Christ is the offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3:29, those who are by faith in the offspring of Abraham Christ, they too are the sons, the offsprings of Abraham, we Gentiles are the, the offspring of Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is the gospel, the new covenant, simply the new administration of that covenant of promise, the, the Abrahamic covenant. But then when you look at, for example, the Mosaic covenant, it's completely different. It, 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 isn't, it isn't this unconditional promise that is given. It, it is a conditional uh, Mount Sinai. And so Exodus 24, the ratification, if you just compare Genesis 15, the ratification ceremony of the Abrahamic covenant with with Exodus 24, the ratification of the Mosaic covenant, completely two different ceremonies. All the responsibility is laid upon the people. All this that, you, that the Lord has said we will do. And Moses says, okay, be that upon you and your children. And, he, and he, he ceremonially and symbolically splashes the blood upon the people. And he says, if you don't obey, the curse be upon you. But uh, in contrast, in Genesis 15, God says, if Abraham if I don't come through, the curse be upon me. And of course, we know that uh, Colossians, for example, Paul calls uh, the the death of Christ in the cross Christ circumcision. Christ fulfilled what was what was promised in the Abrahamic covenant he fulfills it Christ was cut off Isaiah says in fifty three uh, he was cut off from his people he was circumcised. but the point is is uh, in Galatians, Paul makes a very clear demarcation between a covenant of law, Moses, and a covenant of promise, Abraham. And he says, if you confuse these two types of covenants, you're going to be a Judy, you're going to be guilty of Judaizing. It's going to be what he says in Galatians chapter three you're going to get in by grace, but you're going to keep or complete yourself by your works. And, um, you know, covenantal nomism. uh, And, of course, if you're Presbyterian, everybody knows about the shepherd controversy or the federal vision controversy. uh, If you're evangelical, you know about uh, the John Piper view of uh, uh, final salvation dependent upon your sanctification and uh, undermining the doctrine of justification and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. But these are confusions of covenants. And and so when we talk about law and gospel, we're talking about different types of covenants and how God uh, relates to us based on those covenants. We're
1: going to end part one of our interview with John right here. And you can tune in next week for part two when we dig into gnomism and antinomianism. Thanks for joining us.